Well, good morning. It is good to be back and appreciate that welcome. And when uh, Skeet asked me to take this part in the sermon series through the book of Acts of the Dangerous Church, it was an easy yes because any excuse I can get to come back and, and to be here and to worship with you, uh, I definitely want to take. And uh, a little bit rusty. It's been a while since I've spoke. I don't. Have you ever ever heard me speak? It's pretty bold of you to ask me to come speak without actually ever hearing me speak before. <laughs> It's the dangerous church. Yeah, that's where that comes in right there. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity and the honor to be able to come and worship with you this morning and to be the first one to try out speaking down on this part of the stage in the church as well. So no one's brave enough, dangerous enough to sit right here on the front row to take that awkward seat right there. But I appreciate being here. And not only is it easy, yes, because I love being back in Tomball, but it's also this passage that Skeet asked me to speak on has such a missions theme to it. And so it was an easy yes to say yes to this passage. It's a great um, part of the book of Acts, segue, uh, how do you say that word? Into the next section of, um, of the book of Acts, you know, in Acts 1.8, it talks about, you know, uh, Jesus tells the disciples that you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll be my uh, witnesses into Jerusalem and Judea. And it goes on to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is kind of the segue into the uttermost parts of the earth uh, kind of uh, theme as we go through the book of Acts. And so it's a great passage. It's also, it's kind of an easy passage because there's not really any hard topics in this passage. There's kind of three sections. It's pretty self-explanatory. When you go through it, you read it and you go, okay, if we were to take time this morning for everyone just to kind of read through it, and if you were to jot down your own observations, your own notes from the passage, came up with your own points, you could probably compare those to the person sitting next to you, probably with what I'm going to actually say. It would probably be the same. There's not, a, there's not like hidden keys, secrets to the Christian life. It's pretty just straightforward of the narrative. That's just a continuation of the narrative in the book of Acts. It's a pretty easy passage from that standpoint. It's not an easy stand, passage from the standpoint of personal conviction, though. Because when I look at this, there's a lot of uh-ohs that I had when I was reading it. Things that I would look at and go... I don't know if my life necessarily reflects the lifestyle that these guys were living. There's a lot of things in our lives that are easier said than done. And this is one of those passages where you look at it and you can go, okay, it's easy to see what you were supposed to do, what they did, but it's not necessarily easy to always do those things. You know, James, it's easy to know that you're supposed to floss, right? (laughs) It's just not always easy to get into that habit of flossing. Cognitively, if I was checking a yes-no box, I would check the yes box when it comes to, are you supposed to floss? I won't answer whether I do or not. I'll just leave that. There's a lot of things. Educators going back to school, you know, I, I was always excited about this time of the year until the end of my first homeroom class because I was, I'm going to start assignments early. I'm going to study instead of going out with my friends. It was cognitively, I could have checked, should I study for this test or go out with my friends? I would check the study for the test box. Which one of those I did... I'll let you just kind of guess on that one as well. There's things that are easier said than done. Speeding, when you get that ticket, it's not like you didn't know what the speed limit was. But the ability for that to translate to how the, you know, much pressure you're putting on the gas pedal, there's, there's things that doesn't always make that easy. Staying awake in church. You can check, yes, I probably should do that. And some of you are already having a hard time with that one this morning. I can, I can see Pastors, I won't point you out because you just you have jet lag. You have an excuse this morning if you just fall out. <laughs> we'll understand. Just coming back in town. But there's things that are easier said than done. We were going through, in our family devotion time a few weeks ago, um, with, with our family, we were talking about 
not talking about others and about you know taking the log out of your eye before you talk about the speck that someone else is or trying to take that out. And Zeke pipes up and goes, yeah, you know who does that all the time? It's Ryan. <laughs> so cognitive is, is easy to understand the concept. Of course, I just did it to Zeke, so I think that made me guilty of doing the same thing right there. I've got to work on that one, too. So the, there's some things that are easier to see when you come to the passage. It's easy to know, okay, this is what they did. This is probably what I'm supposed to do. But living it out is a, different, is a different story. And it's definitely a different story for me when I look at this passage as well. There's some places in the Bible when you look at the stories and when you look at what's happening, it's a little bit hard to translate it maybe to what would I do in that situation. When you think about David and Goliath, for instance... I don't know if you ever think about this. If I was David, would I have done the same thing? Would I have gone forward? Would I have faced Goliath? Or there's other places where you look at, you know, Moses. He had the burning bush. And you think, okay, would I have accepted the call to go? But when you look at this passage, there's not an overwhelming, um, miraculous events that are happening. It's, it's pretty normal. I mean, God is definitely at work, and we're going to see that as a theme. But these seem to be kind of ordinary people going about doing some, what seems to them, I think, ordinary things. And so it... It's really convicting for me when I look at it to see if I was in their situation, would I go about doing the same things that they did? So we're going to look at the passage this morning. There's three parts to it, three parts to this passage. You'll see them as we go through. And then we're going to come back and tackle kind of each section on its own. And as we do that, we're going to look at three questions, at least three questions we're going to ask to each section. The first one is, when the believers were in this place, what did they find or what did they discover? That's the first question we're going to look at. The second one is, what did they do about it? Or what did they do? What was their response? What was their reaction? And then the third question we're going to ask is, what was the result? All right, so what did they find or discover? What did they do about it? What was the reaction? And then what was the result of what they did? All right, so that's kind of the, the questions that we're going to ask as we go through. But before we do that and we look at these, um, we're in Acts chapter 11, by the way. Chapter, chapter 11, starting with verse 19. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to come together this morning and to worship you, to open your word, to open our hearts to you. Father, I pray that you would allow us to to do just that, to worship you, to set aside distractions that creep into our lives so often, things that we can uh, not just be distracted by, but things that we can even worship above you. Father, I pray that you would allow us to center our hearts back onto to you this morning. Father, I pray you would open our hearts to you, not just a head knowledge, but that it would translate to changes in our own lives and our behavior, the way that we treat other people. And Father, I pray this morning as literally billions of people around the world woke up today, earlier than we, on the other side of the world, places even closer, with absolutely no access to a church, with no access to the gospel, who will go through their day-to-day without meeting one person who knows you, who's living for you. And Father, I pray that today, through the preaching of your word all across America and other places around the world, that you would continue to raise up people who would be willing to go go cross-culturally. Father, I pray that today you would raise up hundreds that would be willing to, to leave and to go. And to see that other people that have no access to the gospel would hear. Father, I thank you for these words, for the examples of the people that we're going to read about. And I pray that you would um, pierce our hearts and our attitudes 
with your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. So in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, I'm just going to read right through. There's three sections. You'll kind of probably be able to see those pretty easily, and then we'll come back and handle them each on their own. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Venetia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Some of you and your Bibles may be down in the footnotes would see that Hellenists would mean these were non-Jews, people who spoke Greek but were non-Jews. So they spoke to, you can, another way you could say that would be Gentiles, people that are non-Jews. Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So three sections here that I want to look at. We're going to ask these questions. What did they find when the believers or the different people got to these different places? What did they do about it? And then what was the response? Well, one of the first things we see as we look at this passage, starting in verse 19, is that the believers that were going to Antioch, that ended up in Antioch, went there because they were scattered because of the persecution. It's a continuation, really. This is the second part of John Hattenberger's sermon just a few weeks ago in chapter 8, where Stephen was stoned, and where he talked about not backing down. And I don't know about you, but I had Tom Petty in my mind the rest of the day after that sermon. If anyone else did, won't back down. I just was playing. But these were people that were now that were scattered because of that time of Stephen, uh, Stephen being stoned. They're, they're fleeing. And the people that were being scattered, the people that were, that were leaving Jerusalem, leaving different parts because of the persecution, many of those people were Jews. But we also see from the, this passage that not all of them were from Jerusalem, and probably not all of them were actually uh, Israelites were Jewish people, especially the ones that are from Cyrene and other places where Africa, um, were different parts of, of maybe uh, of Israel. And so these are people are, are, that are going out, and some of them being Jews, some of them not being Jews, but all of them being believers that are settling into this new place. And they were scattered there. And as they were going about when they were landing in these new places, some of them, we hear in even different parts of Acts, were sharing their faith as they went. But we see something interesting here is that most of them were only sharing with other Jews. So when they would arrive to a new city or to a new place, they would seek out the people that were Jews, people that were, had already migrated to these different places around the world at that time. But there was a different group of people that did not just share with only people like them. They shared with people that were different from them. And especially when you look at Antioch, there was a lot of people. It was a very metropolitan type city. There were people from all over the world that were living in Antioch. It was the third largest city at that time. Rome being first, Alexander being second, and then Antioch being the third largest. It was a very metropolitan city in that people were living from all over the world. 
There were people from China that were living there, obviously people from Europe that were living there, people from Africa were living there. And it was somewhat of a segregated city, too, in that each group of people, and we do this in our cities, we go out to L.A. or New York, maybe in certain parts of Houston, you would see you have Chinatown, or you have Little Italy, or you have these different sections of town where people tend, because they're from the same area, that they tend to stay in. And so there's a lot of segregation within the city, although there were people from all over the place. And people practicing a lot of different religions, and it was also a very secular city. And, you know, this is the type of place that would be like sex, drugs, and rock and roll were the the theme of the day. There was a lot of decadence in the city. A lot of things that were anti what you would call Judeo-Christian principles that we would want to live by today. A very um, secular city in that sense, even though there was a lot of different religions that were practiced there. Um, and so this is kind of the situation that they find themselves in. Antioch is about 300 miles north of, and on the coast, um, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So they found people that were like themselves, but they also found people that were very different from themselves in the city. But when they got there, what did they do? Right. So they get to Antioch and find a very different type of city where they came from, different type of people. What did they do? When this passage it says that they preached the, the Lord Jesus, they did, I think... They talked about what they loved. I've heard it said that you can't hide smoke, you can't hide a cough, and you can't hide love. You can't hide smoke, you can't hide a cough, and you can't hide love. What does that mean? And these guys, you couldn't hide their faith. Even though they're in a city that was very different from them, they talked about what they loved. Because they were fans of Christ, right? They were fans of what God had done in their lives. They were in the grip of grace. And it became, very, I think, very natural for them to do that. It's funny, when you talk about being a fan of something, if you're a fan of a sport team or, for, uh, sports team or a fan of a TV show or something like that, what do you do? Like, what do fans do? They talk about it. You don't have to hold, like, a seminar on what it's like to be a fan for someplace. If you walk into someone's office and you see that their office is painted a certain color, and you see that there's certain pictures on the wall, and you see that there's certain pennants hung up, and you can tell this guy likes this certain college and this certain team. And probably no one sat down and said, look, if you really want to be a fan of Texas A&M, this is the color that you have to paint your office. These are the banners that you have to hang up and the pictures you have to hang up. You should do that. They probably didn't say you have to check out these websites on a regular basis to see who the new coach is this year. You probably don't have to figure out like these different. They just do that because they're a fan of that. It's a part of their conversation, a part of what they do. And I think this is what these people were doing. They were just talking about what they loved. And what they loved was Christ. What they loved was what Christ had done in their life. And they were doing that naturally. What's interesting, though, is that some of them were going cross-cultural to do that. They were sent out into a new place, a new region to do that because of the persecution. But we have the privilege today. We don't have to wait for persecution in order to scatter us out to new places. We can just go. But these guys were willing to go into a cross-cultural setting in order to share Christ. What was interesting about this, too, is that up till this point in time, For a Jew to share with a Gentile, it was, there was some circumstance that was, um, I was going to say extraordinary. Is that really a word? Which doesn't make sense to me, because ordinary and extra, like, it's like extra medium. These were, um, these were, before then, if they were going to share with Gentiles, there was some other circumstance that was somewhat miraculous in order for them to share a Christ. When you think about Philip who went to Samaria, it was a surprise for him to do that. And for him to share with the Ethiopian, I mean, that, that was a miraculous situation. You know, where he shows up and there's a guy reading the book of Isaiah and it's a, it's a person who's not a Jew that's doing that. And so for him to go up and share and then he gets transported to another place. And when you look at Peter with Cornel- Cornelius, you know, it was an extra 
ordinary kind of you know thing, where he has to be you know a sheet has to come down and he has to be spoken to to go do that, and then the people show up to his house and invite him. And I love Peter's response when he shows up to his house. He kind of pauses at the doorway and says, "I've never been in a Gentile's house before." He was real cautious about doing this, which isn't exactly the best, you know, first line for sharing Christ with someone. You know, when you show up to their house, like, I don't know about this. Like, I've never been in your type of people's house before. But all right. Whereas these people, they're going across culturally. They're ministering to people that were very different to them and sharing Christ with them. What's interesting, though, is that the Lord was with them. This is something that God was doing. It wasn't just their own talents. It wasn't just their own abilities. It was something that the Lord was with. And I love this quote, talking about ordinary people, and it's from this book called Total Church. I think we have it here. He's talking about his, um, he's talking about his church and how the gospel spread where they are. And he says, major events have a role to play in church life, but the bedrock of gospel ministry is low-key, ordinary, day-to-day work that often goes unseen. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. The ordinary needs to be saturated with a commitment to living and proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is a message. And so mission only takes place as we share that word with people. The question when I look at this that I have to think about my life is, in the natural course of my day, in my ordinary life, is this something that I naturally do? I do naturally talk about things that I love. I do naturally talk about things that I'm a fan of. But is my life central to Christ to a point, my love for him to a point that is something that I'm sharing with other people on a regular basis? We were doing an event as a mission organization. We, we, we were holding this event. We invited different people in from around um, the country to kind of check out our mission agency, to talk to them about going into missions. And we invited uh, Ellie Bach to come out and be a part of that event. Uh, to just get her feedback and have her debrief with us and, and kind of, you know, critique it for us. And at the end of the event, we got together and I was like, well, you know, so what did you think? And her response was great. Not, it, it, she had a great insight. It wasn't necessarily great that I wanted to hear. She said, I think your event was good. It was functional, but it wasn't contagious. It was functional, but it wasn't contagious. I think you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. I, don't, I just don't know if it was contagious. And as I thought about that later and how I wanted to maybe help our event become more contagious in that way, I also started thinking about my own Christianity, my own walk with Christ. How would I describe it? How would you describe these people's walk with Christ? Functional or contagious? I'd check the contagious box. And as I thought about my own life and thought, I wonder if I'm just more functional in the way that I live my life with Christ. And then I started to think about this. Is functional Christianity an oxymoron? Is there a such thing as being able to be a follower of Christ or being called Christ-like and not be contagious? You can't hide smoke. You can't hide a cough. And you can't hide love. If my Christianity maintains itself through being functional and never crosses that place of being contagious, is it Christianity? If we define Christianity as being Christ-like in love with Christ. Like I said, this passage was convicting. Easy to translate, not so much hard to live out. 
But what was the, the result? So we, obviously we know that these people were contagious in what they were doing. They were talking about what they loved. Their lives were calibrated to Christ. Everything that they were doing, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And what was the result? Well, we see that there's two. One is that people came to the Lord. People were added to the number. And this is going to see a theme that you're going to see throughout Acts as well, the dangerous church. But another thing that we see, one is that God was adding people. God's hand was on them, and God was adding people to, uh, to the faith. People were coming to the Lord. But the other thing that happened is that the Jerusalem church found out about it. The Jerusalem church heard about it. 300 miles away, they were beginning to hear about this group of believers that were in Antioch, and that were sharing their faith, and that a great number of people were being added to the Lord there. And so the church in Jerusalem decides to do something as well, and they decide to send out a delegation of at least one person. I don't know if anybody accompanied Barnabas or not, but they decide to send Barnabas to check it out. I love this because we begin to see that the church is not just existing on its own. It's not just a church in Antioch and a church in Jerusalem and believers here and there, but they were interconnected in a very real way. I think this is one of the things that made the church dangerous throughout the book of Acts as we look at it is that they were very connected with each other. They knew about each other. They heard about their faith. And they also sent people to each other in order to be connected in what they were doing to, to help out. And so they decided to send Barnabas. And we've already read about Barnabas a couple times in, in chapter 5. We read that he's the one that sold a lot of property and gave all the money. And there's other people that were trying to imitate him in that. We know that he's a son of encouragement. Is his nickname. He's a great encourager. We also know that he's the one that accepted Paul or Saul still at the time before anyone else did, that he reached out to him when everybody was still scared. So Barnabas is a great guy to send. And I don't know why the Jerusalem church necessarily wanted to send a delegation out if they were, you know, in their minds, if they were saying that they really wanted to help or if they were just skeptical, like, can they really be believers in Antioch? Can they really be seeing other people come to Christ? But they sent a great guy to go do it because Barnabas was an encourager. And so when he gets there, what did Barnabas find? And I love the way that uh, this passage says it, that when he found there, he found the grace of God. He found the grace of God. When I read that, I wonder, maybe like you would wonder too, like what does that look like? He finds the grace of God. Well, what is the grace of God? What did that look like in these people's lives? I think it's interesting that it doesn't say other things that he could have found that were probably even true. Like, finding the grace of God is probably, is there a better scorecard than if someone were to visit and they were to leave Tombow Bible Church and go and report back to someone else and say, what did you find at Tombow Bible Church that morning? A great speaker? <laughs> maybe not, maybe so, I don't know. Great worship music? Great, you know, the, the Bible was central to what they were doing? I wonder if the scorecard would be, we found the grace of God there. Is there a better scorecard than that? I think what's interesting about it, too, is that there could have been other things that were said. He found a zeal for evangelism. That wouldn't have been a bad thing. It certainly seems like it would have been true. He found that they were involved in social justice issues. Prostitution was a huge thing in Antioch. And there were people that were standing up and fighting against that. Is that he could have found that. They were concerned about the poor. They were concerned about racial tensions and the segregations of the city. They were concerned about, they, they could have said those things. Those would have been good things. He could have come back and said, I found that they knew the word of God really well. They were very knowledgeable when it came to the word of God. That wouldn't have been a bad thing. But those aren't the things that he said that he finds. What he finds is the grace of God. I think all those things are evidences of the grace of God. But when I thought about why those other things maybe weren't brought out, I thought, you know, maybe one reason is because, and the book of Acts does this over and over again, it will kind of give us an example of of how they were living their faith out, 
But then it gives us an example of someone trying to imitate the way that they're trying to live their faith out and having consequences for it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? When you think about Philip that was in Samaria and the miraculous things were happening, Simon, who became a believer, who's a sorcerer, becomes a believer, goes and says, hey, I want to be able to do the things that you were doing. When you laid your hands on people and the Holy Spirit came, I'll pay you. I'll go to a seminar. If you can do a conference, I'll pay you. You can teach me how to do that, and I can do that too. Right? And then Peter has very negative words for him. And so, I think the, the book of Acts is very cautious over and over again for us not just to imitate certain behaviors and methods. Does that make sense? Grace is a hard thing to imitate. It's a hard method to follow. If you would have said they had zeal for the word of the Lord, that would have been something, you know, zeal for evangelism, that would have been something that we could imitate it. But it's hard to imitate grace. It's hard to fake grace. And I think it's interesting that he put grace there. So what did he find? He found people that he found the grace of God there. What did he do? He encouraged them to stay true to the Lord, to remain true. He went and find, found Saul, brings him back. He teaches the word of God for a year there. They were able to teach a great number of people. They taught the word. But what were the results? What were the results when they found when they taught there for a year, the result of teaching the word there for a year, the result of the grace that they already had of God on their lives. One of the things we find is that the people of Antioch gave the Christians, gave the believers a new name, and that was the name Christian. That the believers were first called Christians here. One of the things I think is interesting about being called Christian at this time is this is not a name that they gave themselves. Right? They didn't declare themselves as Christ-like. It was people that were far from God that declared them Christ-like. It was really a derogatory term. And we've seen that derogatory terms have oftentimes throughout history has become like a hallmark of other people. Like the Quakers. You know, they were being, Quaker was a funny, you know, that was a name that they were saying, you quake in the fear of the Lord, and they were making fun of them for being Quakers, and it sticks. Or even the Methodists. You guys are so, meth, you know, you have all these methods that you have to follow in order to be a part of your religion. So they get called these Methodists, but it sticks. And these people, it was a term that they were given as a derogatory term. It was something they were making fun of them by, but it's something that sticks. Peter even alludes to it later in, in, in 1 Peter, where he says, just because people are calling you Christians, if, you know, don't, don't feel bad because you're being persecuted. Wear that as a, as a banner. And so here they are being called Christians. I guess what I'm saying is that one of the results of what was happening as the, being full of grace, being in the word the way that they were being taught by Paul and, and uh, Barnabas, is that other people took notice. There was a difference in their lives because of that. They were Christ-like, and other people noticed that. It's not a name that they gave themselves. They weren't calling themselves Christians because of the certain behavior that they were doing. It's something that someone else was calling them. When Luke was playing football, for our, there's a church close to us, and they were playing flag football, and uh, they gave out stickers at the end of the practices, like, you know, who had the best, you know, who do you think was doing the best on defense, who was doing the best on offense, who had the best hustle, you know, who's like the most improved, these kind of things. And so there's all these little stickers, but it's a, it's a church that's doing it, and so they had this one, and, and they were going through these stickers, and they would say, like, who had the best defense? And people would kind of look around and go, well, Tommy did. Tommy had really good defense this weekend, so that he would get the sticker. And all the kids would kind of agree on, like, who should get the sticker, right? And then they came to this one, and it's kind of a, a, a funny sticker to give, I guess. But he goes, who do you think was most Christ-like in football practice today? And all the kids are about six years old. They're all going, me, 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 me. They're all, like, raising their hand. And, and I watched this, and I don't know. It's just, I don't know if it was a bigger sticker that they wanted to be Christ-like. I mean, I'm, I'm excited that they wanted to be. But they were all, like, you know, self-proclaimed most Christ-like that day for 
football practice. <laughs> but there was something that was different about them, that was Christ-like about them, that caused them to be this way. There's a, a show on uh, ABC, I think it's 2020 or one of those type of shows, where they talk about what would you do. I don't know if anybody's ever seen this, where they put, they create a scenario, a situation, and they have people walk by that situation, and they try to see how they would respond to it. Has anybody ever seen that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A few of you. So this one, I saw it a few weeks ago, and they had um, these, this um, older man dressed up like a bum sitting on the side of the street with this, like, kind of some garbage stuff around him. And they had these teenagers that were, you know, acting like punks, and they were kind of dressed up a certain way, and they had, like, a fake bat, and, but they had this bat in their hand, and they had these clothes in there, and they're kind of hitting on him and, like, cussing at him and saying all this kind of stuff. Anybody see that one? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm getting some facial recognition here. All right, yeah. <laughs> Got a testimony there in the back. Thank you. The, um, so, and they were trying to see if people were just walking by, what would, how would they respond to this? And there were people that would step in that were trying to protect them. Even though one of the guys had a bat, there were people that were actually entering in trying to protect. And then they thought, what would be the difference if we made it a lady, an older lady, instead of older man? Would that make a difference? And so they switched them out and put an older lady there. And sure enough, more people actually stopped and came to the rescue. Now, there's plenty of people that just walked on by. There's some people that just watched from across the street. And there's some people that entered in, that tried to rescue. They did one with handicapped parking, where they have these uh, girls in this convertible pull up and just in this handicapped spot, and they're just hanging out at this place, and they thought, would anybody say anything? And most people just walked on by. So then they said, well, what would, would it make a difference if we had a, an actual person in a wheelchair coming by that needed a place to park, and there's a conflict? Would anybody step in? More people stepped in at that moment to help out. And so they were saying it's kind of it's amazing that some people would actually step in, but a lot of people walked on by. I didn't see this one, but I heard about one recently where they had a Good Samaritan play out where they said, we need you to go down to the certain address, we need you to be there by a certain time, and we need you to follow this route. Here's the map. And I think they actually even were going to pay them to take the surveyor to, to do this. And in route, they would find someone that was in distress that needed help. And they wanted to find out, would these people help or not help? Some people did, some people didn't. I think they were saying when they were on a time strength to be there, most people didn't help. It was overwhelming that people wouldn't help because they had a certain time frame that they said that they had. But when they said you can do it within a larger time frame, more people helped. And then they, they put out the racial part of it. They said, what would happen if we switch from a white person that was in distress to an African-American that was in distress? Would more people help or not help? And I thought, man, it would be interesting to see in these scenarios that they're creating to see if people would help, if they would intervene, if they said, okay, now we're going to switch you know, we're going to switch the, the bum out from a male to a female, but we're also going to put all the contestants that are coming through. I mean, it'd be impossible to set this up because they're just on the street. But we're going to make it all Christians, and we're going to see, what does it make a difference if it's a Christian walking by versus non-Christian walking by? Would it make a difference? Next part, or the thing that I ask when I look at this is, is my Christianity Christ-like? if it is not characterized by being Christ-like? Is my Christianity, can I call it Christianity if it's not characterized by being like Christ? The next session, we'll close out with this and go through it pretty, or characterized at least by grace. Is my Christianity Christ-like if it's not characterized by grace? Part three, we see what did they find well, in this section, it's a little bit different in that there's, um, we have the people from Jerusalem that they come to Antioch and they begin to talk about 
this famine that's going to take place. So what they find is that, or what they discover is that there's going to be a great need for the people in Judea and in Jerusalem. They're going to have an incredible need. So what is their response? What do the disciples in Antioch do? What do the believers there do? They gave. It's interesting because when the, when the need is presented from a church that's 300 miles away, there's a lot of different reactions that they could have given, right? It's 300 miles away. In those days, that's a world apart. It would take them so much longer to get from Antioch to Jerusalem in that day than it ever takes us to get around the world to the other side today. They were so far away for that news to be able to travel, for the communication and all that. But when they found out that there was a need, the church was interconnected. They were going to meet that need. They had sent people to come and help teach them for a year. When the opportunity came for them to be able to give, they gave. They could have said that we have needs right here around us. Why do we need to help them? They're 300 miles away. We have needs around us that we can meet, that we need to meet. They could have said, let someone else closer to their context do it. They could have said, the economy is really bad right now. They could have debated for a long time about what was the wisest and the best way to handle the situation. But the response is, is that they gave. The church was interconnected to the church around the world, and I think that we would be amiss as a church, that we would not be a dangerous church. This church, I think, was dangerous because they were interconnected to church, to other people, to other churches, and we're able to meet and help and move into each other's lives in those ways. Well, what was the result of their sacrificial giving? I think one of the questions, I think the last question that I put up here is this for me. I don't know if we have the quote or the question next. We'll find out. Drum roll, please. <laughs> here we go. Next slide. Okay, here we go. Question. So the question that I ask is, is my Christianity Christ-like if it is not characterized by being sacrificially giving? Is my Christianity Christ-like if it's not characterized by sacrificially giving. Generous. The result is that they got a reputation. And I want to read this quote. This is, um, I think, from Chuck Colson, uh, one of his books. I don't know the the exact source. I I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it's from a Chuck Colson book. Um, But it was talking about in the early church, they sent a report um, when the Caesars wanted to find out what are these Christians really like. And so he sent out this guy to observe them and to come back and report about them. And this is what he said. The Christians show kindness to those who are near them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do good to their enemies. If one of them have bondsmen through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods and they go their way with modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him in to their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy, and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. This is their manner of life. Full of grace, 
contagious in their love for Christ to the point of if they find out that someone is in need and they don't have something to give, they fast in order to have more. To be a dangerous church, we're going to have to learn how to be interconnected, not just with one another, but with other churches around the world as well. When I think about the church, the believers that are in India, in this one city where we have a team right now, there's 93 million people. It's a third of the population in the States. 93 million people who live in this one part of India with zero, with 0.02% known believers. 0.02% known believers among a population of 93 million people. When I think about that, I think, is this how we live our lives? Is this the manner of how we live our lives? Like, what would it take to see those people come to Christ? It's going to take churches all around the world helping other churches around the world that are able to reach those type of people. Is my Christianity Christ-like if it's not contagious? If it's just functional? Is my Christianity Christ-like if it is not characterized by grace? Is my Christianity Christ-like if it's not characterized by sacrificially generous? Those are the questions I asked myself coming out of this passage. They were tough to answer. And this morning, I pray, maybe they're tough for you to answer, and maybe you look at those and you, I pray that we would find, that there's no way to answer those questions well, to live those things out well for our men or our life to be that without the grace of God. The Lord's hand was with them in each one of these situations. And we would not be able to live this out without the Lord's hand being on us. And so, would you pray with me this morning? We're going to sing a couple songs, and maybe during this time you can ask, God, would your grace be so evident in my life that you would change my heart, that this would be my manner of life as well? Let's pray. Father, thanks for, again, for your grace. Thank you for, for those believers who, through being scattered or through their own uh, accord, even in recent history, that were willing to share their faith Um, for those who share their faith with me. For the man who was bold enough and courageous enough when I was a kid to volunteer with young kids in a graceful way, in a way that he wanted to share his faith. And Father, I thank you for those that you raise up um, around us that are contagious believers. And I pray that you would bolden our hearts and give us grace in our own lives that we would um, so love you that we would be contagious. I pray that you would allow us to be graceful towards others that are around us. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to live a lifestyle that reflects your heart for the nations. In Christ's name I pray, amen.